Welcome to Kindreds, a podcast for soul sisters. I'm Ashley Peterson. And I'm Katie Zay. We're kindred spirits talking all things faith, feminism, and friendship from our homes in the South. Hey, Ashley. Hey, Katie. How's it going? It's going well. Tell me about what's new in your world. Uh, It is all things teething related in my world right now. My um, poor little Avery is, uh, I think he's getting four new teeth, maybe more. That's intense. It is pretty intense. Thankfully, he is still sleeping at night, but he's not eating too well and kind of spends most of his days grumpy and chewing on things and drooling a lot. And, you know, we're just doing what we can and trying to have a little bit of extra grace for what he's going through because it can't be comfortable and it's, you know. And he can't tell you what he needs or what would make him feel better. I know he can't. And so we're just trying all the different tricks we can think of. You don't like this teether that's shaped like a foot. How about this teether that's shaped like a hand? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I mean, it's worth a try because sometimes something random works and you're like, okay, that's what we're going with. (laughs) I know. Have we talked about this before? The um, hashtag reasons my kid is crying. Oh, no, I don't think we've talked about it, but that gives me such joy (laughs) yes me too it's like on um facebook and instagram i think it's it's a twitter account or an instagram account that's reasons my kid is crying or reasons my toddler is crying and it's always like a picture of a child that is just fully upset and the caption might be i gave him the donut he asked for (laughs) (laughs) like totally it's so irrational it is so irrational and we just never have any idea we're like fully in reasons my kid is crying territory right now so we just whatever and just try to move on and not take any of it personally um, and not let it make make us frustrated with each other too we just you know we're parents we're figuring it out we don't always get it right our kids crying like there's it just is what it is (laughs) I have found that if after bedtime, Matt and I can laugh about something mm. that happened mm. in a, like a parenting fail way, mm. it really helps solidify our partnership because we can turn it around and say that was so absurd and isn't it funny? I love it. <laughs> yes. So that's all you can do is laugh about how absurd the whole thing is. Oh, that is so true. <laughs> well, I hope this phase is done soon for all of your sakes me too me too i'm hoping a few more few more weeks and i feel like we'll be in the clear this is just the age for it but definitely yeah so i was going to ask you how you are but i feel like we're about to really get into that yes yeah definitely (laughs) let's let's dive in this is so exciting we've been talking about this for so long i can't believe it's here and our listeners have really been on this journey with you i think but today we're going to be talking about something very special katie's book women rise up sacred stories of resistance for today's revolution came out this week yes yes it's out there in the world it's congratulations <laughs> yay thank you so much it has been a long journey and um it mostly i'm just thankful that the whole thing is over <laughs> at least that, that part of it is done and yeah. now i can talk about it and and share it with the world. So how does it feel? I know you've written things before and you've been published before in an anthology or an essay collection. Mm -hmm. Um, I've done some chapters. Yeah. How does it feel to actually be a published author with your own book? 
<laughs> it, yeah, it's a good question. I think it's a mixture of things and it, it changes from time to time in terms of what the overarching emotion is. But I feel a lot of relief that the process is done and I have been reminded in, in interviews like this one of why I wrote the book and I feel so grateful that I had the opportunity to write it and mm-hmm. grateful that I get to share it with people who I think are really hungry for this kind of book. So I feel relief and gratitude for the most part. Oh, I love it. Well, I feel At least today. Um, <laughs> I feel gratitude for all the work you put into it because I got the privilege of reading an advanced copy and it's beautiful. And the whole time I'm reading it, I'm like, my friend wrote a book and it's very exciting. And you're in there. I talk about you. I am in there. I was, (laughs) that was like a a fun little um, surprise. Mm-hmm. I didn't know you were going to mention me and you mentioned the podcast and I got really excited and was like, Pat, I'm in a book. <laughs> yeah. Well, it took a community of people to write it. You know, I, obviously I did the work of, of typing and things, but in terms of my thoughts and interpretations of certain scriptures, it really was shaped by a community of, of people, mostly women, but not exclusively who helped me mm-hmm. come to my own conclusions. And you are one of those people. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So there are a lot of books about biblical women. I'm interested to know why you felt compelled to write one from this particular perspective. You didn't want me to write like Bad Girls of the Bible Part 18 or whatever they're on now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, for several different reasons, I wanted to write a book about women in the Bible that was different from other ones I had read. Mm-hmm. A lot of them, like Bad Girls of the Bible, which I, I will say I haven't read you know, kind of capitalizes on the idea that there are all these sort of um, seductresses and women in the Bible are all villains, basically, uh, to one degree or another, like some kind of sexy seductress tempter Mm -hmm. kind of thing, which really annoyed me. Mm -hmm. And then there are other books about women in the Bible that are really important that help shape my thought process, but are very academic and not accessible to people who maybe haven't had the opportunity or desire to go to divinity school and learn all of the wonky language that we use in biblical studies classes. And so I wanted to write something that would connect sacred stories of women with stories of today, because to me, they're very much still happening in the world. Um, They're not just old stories. They're, They're our stories and the stories of people, other women who are living in our neighborhoods and around the world. And I wanted it to be accessible for people who, again, might not have had that theological education and and give these women a a more fair shot. Because I feel like, Mm -hmm. again, they're painted, a lot of times women in the Bible are painted in very simplistic ways. And each of them is a fully human person, even if we only have a snippet of who she was, we can read into the story who she might have been. And so I do some theological imagination around who these women might have been as an invitation to folks to really take the time to get to know them mm-hmm. and to come to their own conclusions about who they were. That was my takeaway, honestly, was feeling like I was reading about and learning about these women in a way that I had not been invited to before, mm-hmm. I guess, and think about them as standalone characters and stories with their own wisdom to impart mm-hmm. as opposed to like supporting players in mm-hmm men's stories, which is generally, uh, with a few exceptions, um, that's generally how we are invited to study the women of the Bible or 
mm-hmm. in their roles in relation with men. And Absolutely. you you make that point in the book several times. And I think that that gives us the space. You don't have to be a woman to read this book and feel like you're getting a new way of looking at the Bible. You know what I mean? I think a lot of people would say like a book about women in the Bible is for women. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that's often, yeah, how we how um, books about biblical women are portrayed. A lot of times they're prescriptive. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. this is for women to follow the instructions and the the models set by women of the Bible. That's right. And I don't get the sen- that sense from your book at all. And one thing that I don't – and you, you talk about this in your book a little bit too, like how we are taught to read the Bible growing up. The way I was taught was like there's one way to interpret a scripture – And Mm -hmm. usually like the person in charge, the pastor or your youth leader or whatever, they tell you, this is what this scripture means. And you Mm -hmm. just, oh, okay, that's cool. And you, you go forward with that. And so if there was something in the Bible that was like confusing to me or it didn't apply to me, I just didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know Mm -hmm. that there were different ways of analyzing it and thinking about it. And, and Mm -hmm. folks that don't get to go to divinity school or seminary, like we, we don't really get that Mm -hmm. opportunity. Mm -hmm. And so something that you do with your book that is really cool is um, you explore the Bible from a global perspective. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about what that means and like your thought behind it and why that's important? Mm -hmm. Some of the early stories that I wrote about that informed the book I wrote during a time when I was engaged in advocacy work around global maternal health Mm. and reproductive health more broadly So I guess it was the context in which I was thinking about these stories and thinking about how do I connect them, not just with people in my own community, but around the world and also recognizing these biblical texts were not written (laughs) in the context in which I currently live, right? They, they occurred on the other side of the globe. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I think that that's, that was a big part of it was a lot of the gender justice issues that we talk about, um, within the United States. Sometimes we have such a narrow view instead of thinking about what this looks like globally and how U.S. women fit or don't fit within that larger social justice issue. So like I talk about maternal mortality globally, but I also talk about what it looks like in the U.S. And so I hope that these stories kind of connect us like to one another within our own small circles, but also think about what does this look like you know, for all of God's beloved, right, which are people who live all over the world, not just in our own communities, so I hope in that way, it's a way to kind of connect us um, in a broader network than just like within a Bible study that we might do within our own church. Yeah, I think it's really important too. you know, as you were talking, I was thinking like the women of the Bible were not white Americans and they were not. <laughs> <laughs> that is, you know, American Christianity, we like to center ourselves in every narrative mm-hmm. Um like current, any any story, current or historic, we like to sort of reimagine, I guess, people's lived experiences as though they're white Americans. And mm-hmm. um, I think it's really significant to remember that the women of the Bible were not. And right. think about the actual countries that they lived in, mm-hmm. What where those countries are today, the actual descendants of those women and those peoples. And I mean, the, the Bible is a global book. Right. And, and we just, I think we reduce it too much. 
um, sometimes when we, when we're, especially when we make the Bible prescriptive and that the Bible's really just like a set of, uh, rules to follow and things like that, because then we're just thinking about it in terms of our own experiences today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We forget about the cultures in which these stories were written, but I, I also think sometimes that distancing is used to explain away some of the mm. real injustices in the book. I talk mm-hmm. about this with the story of Sarai and Hagar, which I've probably talked about on the show before, but it's a story of, of forced marriage and, and rape and forced mm-hmm. pregnancy. And when I would bring that up in certain contexts, there would be this impulse to say, well, that's just, that was just how things were. Yeah. You know, whenever anyone says just, it's like, yes. that's a red flag. Yeah. And my response to that is, that's how things are. Yeah. And are you okay with that? Is that the world that you want to create? Yeah. So we can't explain away and say, well, that was just the culture at the time when these injustices against women and girls are very much current. And so I tried to reframe a lot of the stories and connect them with the same injustice that's happening now. So I talk about Hagar as a victim of human trafficking, because that's Mm -hmm. how we talk about that issue today. But that is absolutely Mm -hmm. what happened. She -hmm. was taken from Egypt and brought back... um, you know, as a slave, like that is human trafficking. Yeah, absolutely. And if we're against human trafficking now, then we should be against it in the Bible too. And that, and we should interrogate that a little bit more in our, in the way that we read the book and understand the book. We really need to grapple with that challenging context. Yeah, it's messed up and God is not exactly, God doesn't exactly act the way that we would hope God yep. would act. And, and Dolores Williams in her book, Sisters in the Wilderness says, this God is no liberating God, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. God tells Hagar, go back to the person who abuses you. And that's really challenging. But I think sitting in that complexity, we could all use a little more practice mm-hmm. in doing that. And so I hope that these stories, by inviting us into a complexity and a conversation about, about ancient stories, might give us some practice for how we will do that today, because our life stories are just as complex and nuanced Mm-hmm. And I would want the same care and attention paid to my own life story as I would to these women in the Bible, too. Absolutely. I think that's a really good way of putting it. You know, over the course of the podcast, you mentioned that we've talked before about Sarah and Hagar. And mm-hmm. um, over, we've talked about a lot of the women uh, that you feature in your book. Um, we've talked about Ruth and Naomi. We've mm-hmm. talked about Mary and Elizabeth. Um, and the time that they spent together while they were pregnant, we've talked about Martha Bethany. Mm -hmm. Um, so reading the book, I was just like, oh, we talked about this one. We talked about this one and it made, it brought the book to life for me. Um, and it also made me some of the, it made some of the stories really personal Hmm. for me. And I love that. And I wonder if there are any particular stories that felt most personal for you. Because I wrote the book over several years, I think different stories at different times really resonated with me. So I started writing when Sam was just about a year old. So she's now four. So that gives you a sense of how long I've been working on it. (laughs) And I think when she was a baby, um, the story of Moses's mother hiding him in captivity for three months or in seclusion, I should say for three months was very personal at the time because I had a, a squirmy little infant and I thought about what that would look like to mm-hmm. try to conceal um, a squirmy baby for that long and what that might have felt like. And then 
um, you know, as my life circumstances have changed, I think other stories have resonated with me. I think Martha of Bethany will always resonate with me because I identify so much with mm-hmm. being a doer and I talk about being a productivity junkie uh-huh. and and also advocating for myself when a situation is unfair, mm-hmm. which is what she does so beautifully. I mean, she stands up to to Jesus and says, hey, this isn't fair. And she does that multiple times in the text. So not just in that story, but in other instances where she felt like Jesus had treated her unfairly. And so um, I just love that she kind of stands up to him in that way. And so that I definitely identify uh, with that one. And then, um, you know, I read my own grief into Mary Magdalene and thinking about what it's like to have someone pass away and to spend that time grieving. I mean, all of them, I feel like all of them we can identify Mm -hmm. with. It just depends on sort of what's going on. Um, in my life at the time. And the other one that stuck out to me, not so much in a personal way, but and I've had a number of friends who have been dealing with infertility for a long time. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Hannah's story in the temple of of just weeping before God has really struck me in, in thinking about the people in my life who have struggled with infertility mm-hmm. and what their prayers and desperation have felt like. So I guess all of them, I feel like all of them are part of who I am. Yes. Oh, they are. They're part of all of us. They are. I mean, these are these are stories that are ancient and today. That's yeah. what's so ama- that's what's so amazing about the text to me. And I had someone else in an interview ask me, you know, some feminists say that the Bible is just misogynistic and not useful. Why do you continue to use it? I'm like, because it's because it's so beautiful. Like it's mm-hmm. even though it's deeply, deeply problematic and mm-hmm. misogynistic, there's still these beautiful moments that are inspiring where I learn something new even now about them. And I just think they, they do give new life, even though the context in which they were written was really troubling to me. That's just something I don't want to get rid of anytime soon. Yeah. You mentioned, um, writing it for over three years Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I wonder if you would want to share with us, um, just some of the behind the scenes process of just what goes into writing a book. Like how did, how did you find a publisher and what gave you the idea to, to put your thoughts into a book and what has the process been like? Mm -hmm. Those are all good questions. And I will say there's no magic formula. So if you are someone who's thinking about writing a book, I encourage you to do it, which is basically sit down pull out your computer, turn off your internet and mm-hmm. start typing some words on the paper. I mean, it's for me there was <laughs> really nothing nothing magical about it. You know, Anne Lamott talks about like sitting your butt in the chair. Uh-huh. And there really is a discipline to sitting down and and writing and I think figuring out um what my particular writing style was and how I worked best was really important because I had never done this before. I'd written shorter things like you had mentioned. Mm-hmm. book chapters, you know, maybe a few thousand words, but sitting down to write what I think ended up being 40,000 words. Uh, yeah, like very, very different kind of thing. And what worked for me was writing about an hour every day. And some people can write all day long. That was just not me. It wasn't conducive to my life. Um, I started getting up much earlier in the morning because the early morning quiet was where I found the most clarity and could be in the best mindset to to simply write. But what happened for me, because I only wrote an hour every day, is I wrote the same thing a lot of different times. Mm. And so um, 
I think having the mindset of no word is precious, like just get it down and then you can delete it or rework it later and just writing draft after draft after draft. But I think what I would do differently if I, if and when I do another book is just to not hold back that first time and not feel Mm -hmm. compelled to like get it down right the first time because it's really in the rewriting where the, the beauty comes. Yeah. Isn't um, there, I, there's a phrase that people use that writers use about like the no word is precious. I think it's kill your darlings. <laughs> like don't be afraid. Right. Yeah. Don't be afraid to just get rid of just because a phrase strikes you or something strikes you as important. Like if an editor or a, mm-hmm. a reader is telling you that it's not working, like yeah, don't be afraid. You just got to go. get, let it go. Like you can't, no word is too precious. I love that mm-hmm. that comes up. Yeah. And I also think for me, the, book took on a life of its own and it ended up in a different place than I was expecting when I wrote it. And that was actually really beautiful to observe because I don't really feel like that was just me. I think there was a lot going on in the writing where it evolved. Like it became a lot more about my grandmother than I ever expected. Mm. It was a lot more about that relationship than I I had no idea that was going to be such a central theme, but I talk about her a lot. You do. Throughout yeah. the book and um yeah, but I, I didn't know that huh. when I started writing. So just, yeah, kind of allowing it to be what it's going to be um, and not being afraid to just write and rewrite and rewrite over and over and over again. And that's why it took me so long. Mm. Um, <clears throat> there were months when I didn't write at all. There were months when I wrote longer than an hour a day. And I think just, I know for me, I'm very strict with myself. And so kind of allowing the process to just be different depending on what was going on was was critical too. But part of me is kind of like, I don't really know how that happened. I mean, it just eventually was done. And eventually I had to say, this is good enough, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, we could always perfect something to its death, but um, mm-hmm. not letting perfect be the enemy of the good has been a phrase that I've been trying to hold on to for the last few months. And, um, and not um, the other thing I would do differently is I would have let people into the process a little bit earlier. I was very concerned about how it would be received by people, and I didn't want mm. to be critiqued early on. And I think it probably would have sped up my process if I let a couple more people in. Mm. How has that been, like hearing feedback or um, like criticism, constructive or otherwise? Like how has how has that felt? So I, I've just put the book out, so I haven't gotten too much in terms of, of negative feedback um, on the finished product, but <laughs> she's going to laugh if she listens to this, but I, I hired Erin Lane as my publicist to help me with the book. Oh, and, yeah. And she's a published author. She's been on the show before talking about sabbatical, mm-hmm. but she is a excellent writer. I mean, I put her in a really high esteem in terms of, of her quality of writing and I was nervous about her reading my book and she's read it now, I think five times <laughs> and just, just for helping me, you know, pull quotes and things. And she said, every time I read your book, I learn something new and it's a joy to reread it. And for me, if everyone else hates it, I think Aww. I'm okay because she's like, cause I hold her in such high esteem. So to have yeah. her stamp of approval, um, in that kind of effusive way was like, okay, I know I've got something good. And I imagine the critique when it comes will be about my interpretation of the stories, which Mm -hmm. I actually welcome that. But I think the actual, I feel good about the actual writing. So um, 
maybe there'll be people who don't like it, but I'm okay with disagreement about the ideas, but hopefully nobody says you're a crappy writer. (laughs) 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 And if they do, I'll try to just remember that people I think are good writers have enjoyed the writing. Yeah, I think (laughs) it's all you can do. I'm a yeah. I'm not. I'm not going on Amazon all the time. I mean, I have been a little bit, but I um, I don't think I'll be like searching for negative reviews. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's probably for the best. Like, yeah, <laughs> don't Google yourself like Katie's a bad writer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh, now I'm gonna go do that. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's all good. <laughs> Shouldn't have given you. No, listen. So I googled your name today in preparation for this episode. Um because I was looking for your book's website mm-hmm. and a whole bunch of great stuff has come up. You're, um, you've done a few podcast interviews about your book already. And those are like the top search results. When you look for Katie's Day women rise up, it's your interviews and your book and, um, your Amazon page. Like it's all there and it's awesome. And it led me to one review, um, that I wouldn't have otherwise read. I don't think on fig tree revolution, uh, mm-hmm. Bill Mefford's blog. Yes. And, his review is so I thought it was so thoughtful and really yes. great. Have you read it? Yes, and I I I couldn't believe how generous he was in terms of just going into the depth about his own reflections on the book. I was blown away by it. Yeah, I thought so too. And I'll just share a little bit um about what he wrote because it resonated with me. I had a lot of the same thoughts that he did. So he um talked about how he was changed by your um interpretation of Mary Magdalene mm. and I, so I was taught growing up that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. Like mm-hmm. maybe it didn't explicitly say that in the Bible, but like that was the general understanding of her. And mm-hmm. I just never questioned it. And I think yeah. like it's kind of salacious. So you're like, oh yeah, she was a prostitute. There's a prostitute in the Bible. Like, you know, you don't, I don't know. I never challenged it, like where that came from. And what's sad is that that is probably what she is remembered best for. But there is no biblical justification for that assumption and what I didn't know that I learned from your book and this is what Bill Mefford says in his review that he learned as well that it was Pope Gregory in the 1500s who sort of popularized the idea that she was a prostitute and he just pulled it out of the air he just basically extrapolated that well if it so the Bible calls her sinful if she's sinful, it must be sexual sin because she's a woman. Of course. What of course. Do women do. Right. Yeah. So let's just go ahead and, and make the assumption that she was committing sexual sins. And we'll just call that prostitution. And, and the woman's not even named. No, exactly. And so um, Bill Mefford says in his review that he never questioned his understanding of that as well. And that he actually is taking kind of some ownership of having taught that perspective uh, mm. to to people in the in the past and that he now that's something that he regrets and and hopes to rectify going forward and I had the same thought of like I can't believe that I just believed this about her without ever wondering or questioning it and it makes me want to learn more about Mary Magdalene because um not you know so she's remembered for being a prostitute, but truly she was the first evangelist. She was exactly. the first person, not just first woman, but first person that Jesus revealed himself to after his resurrection and told her to go forth and share the good news. And yep. in my disciples, in my mind, would that not make her the first Pope? I'm just saying, <laughs> like, 
Yeah, she is all the things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it makes me want to learn more about her. It makes me want to maybe do an episode about her. I mean, Ooh, I think that, that would could be, be fun. Yeah. that could be really fun. Like the sort of myths about her, and mm-hmm. maybe some read some feminist uh, theological scholarly work about her and talk about mm-hmm. it a little bit on um, on a future episode because I think that that's something. I mean, it was interesting to me. I imagine it'd be interesting to some of our listeners as well. So my question for you is, um, how do you hope your readers might be changed um, by your book? And how do you hope that they will also rise up after reading it? Hmm. Gosh, it seems presumptuous to want people to be changed by it. But but I hope that it will cause people, I hope it will stir up something within Mm -hmm. readers, some emotion, whether that's disagreement with me and like anger that how dare I say something about a biblical text or Mm -hmm. some compassion or maybe some grief or sadness, like just to feel something about these texts and to spend some time sorting out their own feelings and how, how they connect or do not connect with the text. Because I think these texts are meant to be read in a living way. You know, we believe in a living word. So how might these texts speak in a different way to different people, depending on how they enter into the conversation? I hope that it will draw people into community with one another. And I hope that it will inspire them to think about what actions they can take to kind of live into the legacy of these women who found ways to resist oppressive environments mm-hmm. and to survive anyway. And what might our piece of that look like now in today's world? So more community, more introspection and reflection, and then a going out and doing um, to make the world a more just and compassionate place for everybody, not just women and girls, but for those, everybody who's living on the margins. I love that. So is there anything else you want our listeners to know? Where can they buy your book, first of all? <laughs> you can find my book on Amazon. So if you look up Women Rise Up um, at Katie's, by Katie Zay, it'll pop up. There's actually a few books called Women Rise Up. I guess other people had the great idea of a book called Women Rise Up. <laughs> so um, look for mine. And if you are looking for more resources about the book, you can go to um, katiezay.com and go to the little tab for book. And there are some quotes that you can share from the book on social media. There's a discussion guide that's free. So if you're thinking about hosting a Bible study or a book club or something like that, there's something built in that you can use to help your group think about these big questions that are raised in the book. And I would love to talk with any of you. I mean, I'm, I'm up for traveling, for going and speaking to groups or even doing like a Zoom conversation about the book. So don't hesitate to reach out to me. And you can send me an email at katie at katiezay.com. And I'd be happy to talk with you about doing some kind of book event in your community. That's awesome. I love that there's a discussion guide. That's yeah. really cool. And I would like to chime in and just say, if you read the book, um, take a few minutes to review it and rate it on Amazon. That just just like with our podcast, that helps people find the book. Um, it encourages more folks to buy it um, and get it out there so that people can read it. And you can also, yes, <laughs> yeah, you can also uh, make sure that your library carries it as well. Um, 
you can just let your library know and, and request a copy there. Um, so that's a, another way to make sure that people get a chance to read it. And especially if you want to make sure that folks who can't afford to buy it um, have access to it. So that's another thing you can do. Absolutely. Yeah. So I um, just want to thank you for um, being so open about your book and wanting to talk about it and giving us the <laughs> little behind the scenes glimpses. Um, that was really interesting uh, yeah. to learn about your process. Well, it sounds you so for daunting it, for helping me think through some of these stories and for being generous and dedicating a whole podcast episode to it. Yeah. So my heart is heavy. I'm kind of dreading uh, mm. this. Yeah, me too. We decided to um, spend a few minutes in our kindreds of the moment. Um, just remembering Rachel Held Evans. Um Saint Rachel. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, the whole, t- the whole time we've been talking, I like knew this was coming and it's just, been yeah, it's heavy. It's, it's really heavy. And I know it's weighing heavily on, gosh, probably millions of people Yeah, who have read her books or knew her or interacted with her in some way. Um, I never had the chance to meet her in person, but I felt very honored that she followed me on social media. So we had a chance to have some exchanges and she was just, I loved her public presence was always so gracious and so generous. Yeah. I, um, I did not know her and I'm not really on social media and especially not Twitter or anything like that. And so I didn't, this is going to sound weird. I kind of always thought I would get to meet her one day. Yeah, that, I know that makes sense to me. Yeah, like we kind of um, we're in the same world, in the same world, and so mm-hmm. I just you know I and you and I talked about going to the Evolving Faith Conference last year. Yes. Um, we didn't get a chance to get tickets before it got sold out, but we had talked about doing that as a spiritual care uh, yeah. retreat for the two of us to do. Yeah. Um, and so I just like sort of took for granted um, that she'd always be around and doing doing her ministry. Um, and I, yeah, it just hit me really hard. Um, yeah. when my mom texted me on Sunday and was like, I'm just so sad to hear about Rachel Held Evans. And I was like, what are you talking about? Because I didn't, I don't follow her on social media. Mm-hmm. And so I had no idea mm-hmm. she was sick. Yeah. Yeah. And I, when I knew that she was in the hospital, um, and I was sharing with you before that she and I like exchanged our last tweets to each other while she was in the hospital and because she had gotten the flu and I think while in San Francisco which happened to me a year ago and I just was like same thing happened to me like solidarity sister you know your husband's great he's got it or something like that and I just thought that she would recover I just thought there's no way yeah I um was talking to a clergy friend the other day and telling her that she was the one who had first told me about Rachel Held Evans in A Year of Biblical Womanhood, which is the first mm-hmm. book that I ever read by her. And mm-hmm. she'd recommended this book to me at a time when I was really kind of down on my faith. I was, I've never shared this on the show before, but I uh, was getting divorced. And um, divorce is something that really can be one of those moments that just kind of makes you assess <laughs> like how yeah. you got there and where to yeah. go forward. And um, I was really in a, in a moment of spiritual crisis 
And I, I grew up, and I don't know about you, but I grew up thinking that either you believe the Bible word for word or you're probably not a Christian. Right. Like, yeah, that's all or nothing. It, it was very all or nothing. And, um, my, my friend, uh, at the time told me, you know, that's, she was the first, she's a female pastor. She's the first person who ever introduced to me the idea that like, um, questioning our text and the way we interpret them, like all of that is sort of fundamental to our faith. And that that is, it's not only like, okay, but it's like encouraged. And, and, um, she recommended a year of biblical womanhood and, um, Rachel's other book, uh, it was evolving in monkey town when I read it, but I think the name changed. Mm -hmm. And those books were the first that I'd ever read by someone who was like really digging into what they'd been taught and whether or not it squared with their conscience and their gut and their instinct and intuition and, Mm -hmm. and challenging the idea that like doubt is not apart from God. Like God gave us the ability to question and challenge and, and Mm -hmm. like those, those, those instincts are God given. And so to deny those instincts when we interpret scripture is, um, I guess missing the forest for the trees. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. It goes against our, the being created in the image of the divine. Exactly. Exactly. Mm, what a gift that she gave you to yes. be able to see that. Yes. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. I'm so grateful for who she who she was as a person, who she was in her writing. I think she created a space, especially for evangelical women who were questioning. Like they found someone who voiced some of the things that you're describing mm-hmm. and provided a way for them to either stay or to go and and feel good about that decision. And I also saw her lift up women of color and other marginalized authors in a very intentional way and really modeled for all of us how we ought to be when we get a platform. Yes. Yes. I encourage folks, if you haven't, um, to read what Austin Channing Brown has written about Rachel Mm. on her blog and on Facebook. Yeah. Really just talking about all the ways that Rachel was a champion of her work and open the door to opportunity after opportunity for her, but not never in a transactional way, always in a really authentic, humble way. And that example is one that I hope to follow. Mm -hmm. If nothing else from her legacy, Mm -hmm. Um, that's, that's the big one for me. And I would encourage all of you, if you haven't read Rachel Held Evans' books, go read them. Mm-hmm. If you have read them, share them with someone who needs them. That's how we keep her spirit alive. Um, yeah, my heart goes out to her family. And I think about our podcast and I just think about, like, who gave us the right, you know, to to yeah to speak, to write, to put what we have to say out into the world, you know. And it's folks like Rachel that pave the way um for others and I don't know if you have anything else you'd like to say I just no just trying to live into both the grief and the gratitude yeah and say how how will we be different because of her yeah I think that's what she would want I love you friend
Yeah, I love you too. And um, I hate to end our podcast about such a happy occasion of your your book birthday um, on yeah, but that's what the book. But that's what the book is about, Ashley. It's about sitting with the discomfort that there's nothing. Sometimes there's nothing to say, but we can be together in the difficulty. And I'm grateful to have you. Yeah. I am grateful for you as well. I am grateful for your friendship and I'm grateful for your new book. Um, And I'm grateful for this podcast and being able to have this space to process all the like crazy challenging stuff that comes up with our faith and being women in the world. And um, I just, I'm grateful for all of it. So it occurs to me that we have not yet discussed what our next episode is going to be about. So we're just going to leave it at surprise. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see what emerges in the coming weeks. Yeah. We'll, maybe, be back. we'll be back soon. Yeah. We'll be back soon. Maybe we'll do that Mary Magdalene episode. Maybe not. Maybe Love we'll, it. Maybe we'll find some pop culture to talk about. Okay. That would be kind of a nice break. (laughs) I know, right? All All right. right. Talk to you then. Talk to you then. Thanks for listening. You can find us on our website, kindredspodcast.com. That's kindreds with an S. Or you can send us an email at team at kindredspodcast.com. You can also follow me, Katie, on Twitter at Katie Zay. That's Katie with an E-Y-Z-E-H. Please send us your thoughts, ideas, and questions. We'd love to hear from you. 